Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 13, From Mystery to Mysticism. What do you think of when you hear the words mystic, mystical, and mysticism? The Oxford English Dictionary gives one definition of mysticism as Quote, belief in the possibility of union with the divine through ecstatic contemplation. That's some heavy stuff. But we also have quite another definition of mystic or mystical, basically meaning weird, occult, oogly boogly, as in, quote, Know this, I am no mere warlock whom you can easily ignore. I am Doctor Strange, and I am the master of the mystic arts. From the classic Doctor Strange comic book. Mystical can also mean woolly-headed or characterized by meaningless, drivelly, dreamy-sounding nonsense, as in the phrase, the mystical rantings of New Agers. So we have a number of related terms here with a huge range of possible meanings, an arc encompassing the most sublime heights of contemplative insight, as well as the most turgid and fuzzy sorts of mumbo-jumbo. So then what is the mysticism that we're dealing with in the context of religion or in the context of Western esotericism. Obviously, there's a sort of highbrow meaning associated with the study of religion and with names like William James, Evelyn Underhill, and the like. This is the idea of mysticism we'll be concerned with in this episode and this podcast more generally, much as we dig Doctor Strange comics, especially those from the classic Steve Ditko era. So what is this type of mysticism then? Well, Here's the first and biggest problem with the term mysticism. No one can agree on what it means. But let me use my mystical powers of telepathy and see if I can read my audience's mind here. I'm getting something. It's coming through. For a lot of my listeners, mystical will mean something like the aspect of a religion or spirituality dealing with the direct experience of the divine. This is something like our Oxford English Dictionary definition just mentioned, although that one was very Christian-oriented. In other words, there's a legalistic sort of everyman religion in a given tradition, and then there is the mystical path within that tradition, which deals with the encounter of the mystic with the divine directly. In Christianity, you have the -the run-of-the-mill Christian who refrains from coveting his neighbor's wife, goes to church, and maybe feels like he's redeemed by Christ's death and resurrection. And then you have the Christian mystic, who has visions and feels the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, sometimes attaining to some quite extraordinary ecstatic states. Or you have the lay Buddhist, who tries not to harm living things and honors the Buddha, fulfilling the basic Buddhist commandments on how to live life and so forth. And then you have the hardcore Buddhist monk, who through meditation practice attains to an actual encounter with the formless void at the heart of all seeming existence. In both of these examples, The mystics may well observe all the normal rules and regulations of their religious tradition, but they take things one step further and engage in actual unmediated encounters with the ultimate reality. And we can't really say with the divine here, because in the case of Buddhism, the ultimate reality isn't really divine in any normally understood sense of the term. So that's one idea about mysticism, which is fairly commonplace. This sort of leads us to another idea, which is that of a mystical path within a given religion. It's quite common to read statements like, Kabbalah is the mystical movement within Judaism, or Sufism is Islamic mysticism, which brings the meaning of mysticism closer to that of esotericism, as 
a more restricted path of knowledge, not open to all members of the group, but only to a certain chosen elite or section of the group. So this is how mystics get grouped and organized into what we might call mystical movements within religions. Presumably, these movements are organized in such a way as to assist in bringing on the kinds of direct encounters with the divine that we mentioned in our first definition of mysticism. So these traditions are like schools of mysticism or something like that. Finally, you might think of some kind of inner core of religious experience, which all mystics share. They come from different traditions, so they describe it differently, but at root, mysticism is the same across cultural boundaries, an unmediated experience of some raw reality. This is the religious experience model of mysticism, which arose in the 19th century and was made very influential by classic books like Rudolf Otto's The Idea of the Holy and William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience. If I'm right in my telepathic probing of my audience, and mystic insights are never wrong, all of these approaches to what mysticism means should be familiar to you, my listener. Whether or not this is what you mean by mysticism, gentle listener, these are fairly commonly held nowadays as elements of what it is to be mystical. Authors of books and articles will often use the term mysticism and its cognates without bothering to define them, so the idea is that it's understood what they mean. And we have to try to divine what they might mean for ourselves. This isn't easy when a term as troublesome as mysticism is in play, and a lot of ambiguities arise when we treat these terms as understood categories without need of explanation. But we'll save that discussion for the next episode. In practice, authors who talk of mysticism in the modern period usually mean some combination of one or more of these three concepts, of direct contact with the divine, of an esoteric tradition which teaches techniques for such contact, and of a kind of religious experience which is the essence of the mystical practice which gives it a cross-cultural common core. Now, the first two of these approaches to what mysticism might mean, the emphasis on the personal encounter and the idea of a path within a larger tradition devoted to such encounters, develop out of medieval Abrahamic movements, actually. But the third idea, that of the fundamental religious experience, which is at the root of all the various given accounts of mystical writers, is utterly modern, though it too has roots in the Middle Ages, as we shall see. Overall, though, we will not find these modern ideas about what mysticism is in any ancient, medieval, or even early modern writer of mysticism or on mysticism. These are modern ideas reflecting modern ways of thinking. So let's try to use history to see if we can't get inside this term mysticism and have a look at its roots. How do we get from ancient cultic practices, the mystery cults which we discussed last episode, which were rituals conferring a change of status, to ideas of inner, direct experience of the divine. Well, this is one of those fascinating stories of Western thought and Western esotericism, and we'll try to tell it with great detail over many episodes to come. It involves Platonist philosophy, and especially the great Platonizing Christian writer known as the Pseudo-Dionysius. But it also involves the long history of Christianity, of course, and later the study of religions itself, whereby non-religious scholars try to make sense of what religion is and in so doing, attempt to define what mysticism might mean, and in essence, invent and reinvent mysticism. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's go back now to the mystery cults. What does this term mystikos mean in ancient Greek? And what were the ancient mystery initiates experiencing? As we saw in our previous episode, mystikos and the terms related to it, mystes, an initiate, and myeo, the verb 
meaning to initiate, are all Greek terms, and all the words like mysticism and mystic that derive from them ultimately go back to Greek sources. Specifically, these terms all stem from a terminology associated with the ancient initiatory institutions known nowadays as mystery cults. So were the ancient mystery initiates mystics in the modern sense we've just outlined? Well, if you want to ask Walter Burkert, one of the foremost scholars of ancient mystery cult, he would tell you in his book Homenekans that, quote, if mysticism means personal introspection, the opening of a deeper dimension in the soul until a light shines forth within, then the Eleusinian mysteries were precisely unmystical. End of quote. Burkert is not alone here. When a classical scholar or someone dealing with ancient mystery cults as a historian says the word mystic, they will never mean anything like the modern scholar of mysticism does, nor for that matter will they mean anything like Dr. Strange does. Or to speak more accurately, sometimes they will be mixing the two conceptions of mysticism, but the result is a mishmash that isn't historical at all, it's very anachronistic. So what do the ancients mean when they say mystikos and related terms? In antiquity, the term mystikos primarily refers to the mysteries, that is, to the cultic initiatory institutions of which the Eleusinian were the most famous. It just means, quote, having to do with the mysteries pertaining to the mysteries, end quote. But it derives a further extended meaning of secret, more generally, from the fact that the mysteries were proverbially inviolable secrets. The Homeric hymn to Demeter stresses this point, and pretty much all later sources do the same. If you reveal the mysteries, the gods will punish you. Secrecy is what makes something a mystery. And the secrecy surrounding the mysteries is proverbial. It's proverbially unbreakable. Even when people in antiquity were accused of violating the mysteries, which did happen from time to time, it happened to the playwright Aeschylus, um, it happened to Alcibiades, the famous Athenian politician and friend of Socrates, and it happened in a different way to Numenius the Platonist, as we shall see in a further episode. Whenever this happened, there was never a suggestion that, oh, that's it, the secret's out, we might as well stop being so secretive about the mysteries now because everyone knows the secret. The mystic secrecy was unbreakable by definition, even when it was broken. We'll return to this theme of an unbreakable secret when, in late antiquity, we see the rise of a kind of ineffable philosophical vision or encounter with the transcendent, which, because it's ineffable, is compared to this mystery secrecy, you can't break it even if you try. And indeed, as we shall see in later episodes, the Greek word for ineffable, aretos or aporetos, simply comes from the mystery cult term for secret, which the philosophers repurpose to the needs of a philosophy involving an ineffable transcendent to express the concept of ineffability. So we have a transfer of meaning from that which should not be told to that which cannot be told. But the idea that the mysteries cannot be told is already present there in the early texts like the Homeric hymn to Demeter. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. From this basic meaning of to do with the mysteries, and thus typified by secrecy, we arrive at a more general meaning of secret accessible only to the initiate, which is basically a synonym for esoteric, if you think about it. Esoteric is defined by the Oxford English Dictionary most relevantly as communicated to or intelligible by the initiated only. So we see here a pretty close match between the ancient meaning of mystikos and the modern sense of esoteric. In antiquity, we see the term and its relatives develop from referring specifically to the mysteries 
to referring to esoteric secrets more generally, especially through its use in philosophy, which we'll be discussing in coming episodes. So that something like the hidden meaning of a myth, for example, can be called a mysterion, a mystery, or mysticos. And here again, we find a perfect mapping onto the idea of esoteric interpretation, the reading of a text to find its secret subtext. Now here's an important point. Pretty much everyone will agree that the ancient mystery cults were not dealing in mysticism in the modern sense of the term, but almost every general work on mysticism, from William James onwards, will feature exemplary quotations from Plotinus, who wrote in the 3rd century CE, or the period known as Late Antiquity. In other words, everyone thinks that the late Platonists were full-blown mystics in the modern sense, concerned with obtaining direct gnosis or knowledge or what have you of the divine, or in their case, of the one, which is the primordial source of all being. Without saying whether this is right or wrong as an interpretation, we can say that the term mysticos in Plotinus and the other late Platonists still has the same meaning as it had in classical antiquity, secret or hidden, not mystical as we understand the term. In fact, even in the Pseudo-Dionysius, whose books really planted the seeds for the modern meaning of mysticism, the term mysticos still just means secret pertaining to initiates only. In other words, esoteric, but not mystical. It's easy to forget this, and we must be careful not to import our modern thinking about mysticism back into the mouths of ancient Platonists, even if we do think that they were mystics by this or that definition of mysticism that we might happen to hold. Just because they were mystics, for the sake of argument, doesn't mean that we're right in mistranslating them when they say mysticos, since we know that what they mean is hidden or esoteric, but never mystical, since that concept hadn't been invented yet. However, we can conjecture how the development of the term towards something more like the modern idea of mysticism occurred based on the pseudo-Dionysian corpus. We find in Proclus, the pagan Platonist, who was the main source for pseudo-Dionysius outside of the Christian tradition, references to initiatory visions, mystikai theoriae, which the Platonist philosopher attains to at the summit of his or her contemplative ascent, an idea which is carried over to the Christian context by Dionysius. Thus, Still in the works of the father of Christian mysticism, Pseudo-Dionysius, mystical doesn't mean mystical, it means secret or esoteric. But we can start to see how it might have evolved further to mean something more like mystical, seems to mean nowadays, because he's talking about a vision, he's talking about something that only the one who sees it is privy to. Now we should mention here another piece of ancient evidence, Synesius's much-quoted statement that Aristotle draws a distinction between mathein, the normal acquisition of knowledge, and pathane, usually translated as experience. And that the mystic initiate does not acquire knowledge, but experience. And this distinction is tellingly repeated in Pseudo-Dionysius, in the context of the mysteries of the Christian faith. Are we not here, then, looking at some kind of experiential mysticism, where the pathos of the initiation, the experience, according to this translation, is some kind of inward ecstatic experience? Well, no. Uh, pathane, this Greek verb, doesn't actually have anything like the range of meanings which we associate with the term experience. In fact, ancient Greek just doesn't have a word for experience. Pathane means to undergo, and it can happen to rocks just as well as to people. We would say that a rock was kicked in modern terms, but we would never say that a rock experienced being kicked. So pathane doesn't have the implication of consciousness that the modern term experience has. 
So let's look at Ross's translation of the famous fragment, which again is Synesius, a late author, quoting from Aristotle's lost work on philosophy, which I would love to read, but I'll never be able to because it's lost. Quote, as Aristotle claims that those who are being initiated into the mysteries are to be expected not to learn anything, but to suffer some change, to be put in a certain condition, i.e. to be fitted for some purpose. Now this is a pretty good translation, and it's clear that Aristotle just simply is not talking about experience here. And we must conclude, neither is Pseudo-Dionysius. Now this is a tricky and fascinating subject, to which we shall return in later episodes. But for now, can we say when the modern sense of the term mystical as referring to an experiential religious path does arise? Well, Pierre Adot, a great classical scholar and student of experiential philosophy, suggests Jean Gerson's De Theologia Mystica Lectionis Sex, or Six Discourses on Mystical Theology, written in the late 14th, early 15th century, where we find, citing page 274 of volume 3 of the collected Gerson, une connaissance expérimentale du Dieu qui se réalise par un embrassement d'amour unitif, that is, an experiential knowing of God brought about by an enfolding of unifying love. This is probably a good place to look for an early reference to a very modern-sounding experiential Christian mysticism, and doubtless other scholars have found telltale stirrings of this experiential emphasis in even earlier Christian writers. As we shall see in the course of the podcast, the 14th and 15th centuries saw a flowering of what is called Christian mysticism in a very new and extraordinary vein, with writers like Poret and Eckhart having made their presence felt. And there's certainly an emphasis on inward-looking experiential religion in these writers, which seems to be moving in the direction of locating the theopathy, the experience of God, directly in the heart of the believer, as a kind of direct encounter. Now, the path mysticism takes after the Middle Ages is a long and interesting one, and deserves its own episodes, which it will get in the course of time. We'll need to consider the work of Friedrich Schleiermacher, in the 18th and 19th centuries, whose conceptions of religious feeling were highly influential on later debates. We shall also have to consider that most unmystical of thinkers, Immanuel Kant. The hard-nosed reductionist scholar of mysticism, Wayne Proudfoot, has this to say about Kant's influence on the development of the experiential model of mysticism. Quote, In the wake of Kant's critique of speculative metaphysics, many students of religion and theology have sought immediate access to the real and a foundation for doctrine and belief in religious experience. It was thought by some that a mode of experience might be discovered that was unscathed by the activity of the imagination in the construction of the forms and categories, and that would be broader than Kant's exclusively moral account of religion. It's not accidental, then, that the phrase religious experience has come to be reserved almost exclusively for aspects of experience that are allegedly pre-reflective, that transcend the verbal, or are in some ways free of the structures of thought and judgment that language represents. Proudfoot and other scholars do not believe in such experiences. For them, there is no unconditioned, pure, mystical reality to be experienced. Or, if there is one, we can't experience it, because experience is, by definition, mediated by concepts and language. Now, this position is quite extreme and hardcore, and can certainly be attacked on numerous fronts, and we here at the Schwepp are up for the job. But we should also note that this criticism of mystical experience is also kind of an echo of what many of our mystic authors tell us. 
If an experience is by definition an experience of something, which it surely must be, then what are we to make of the statements of thinkers like Plotinus and the later Platonists, the Pseudo-Dionysius, Don Scottis Eriugena, Meister Eckhart, Jakob Böhme, and a host of others, who all put this in different ways, but have the message that God, or the One, is beyond all attributes, and cannot possibly be grasped by human consciousness. It is, in fact, precisely not a thing, which our authors sometimes go as far as calling nothing, or nothing at all. God cannot by definition be experienced, and any experiences of him will by definition be experiences of something else, presumably of something that the mystic already had within him or herself, some conceptual reflection rather than the actual divinity. So that's something to mull over for the moment, and we shall assuredly return to this problem next episode as we get serious about deconstructing the term mysticism. But we still have not really arrived at our modern sense of the term mysticism. Since the 1960s, laboratory psychologists have been trying to measure and quantify mystic states of consciousness and so forth, an approach which is a far cry from what we find in post-Kantian movements like Romanticism. To get from there to here, we need to mention a movement which we might call the psychological study of religion, arising in the 19th and early 20th centuries. This movement remains hugely influential, especially in American universities, and its greatest proponents, or rather the ones who wrote the most famous books, on their theories, are Rudolf Otto and William James. Otto was a Lutheran theologian, comparativist scholar of religions, and politician who was very influenced by Schleiermacher, and he lived at the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century. His concept of the numinous, from the Latin word numen, meaning a divinity or the divine power of a god, was hugely influential. The numinous, he argued, was a kind of experience of the sacred. This need not be confined to mystics, incidentally. Everyday believers in all faiths are said to experience the numinous in some way. Now this concept, exactly as he puts it, might seem to be an obvious thing that people everywhere have always experienced. But be careful here, as so often in the history of ideas, concepts which seem universal to us actually tend to have a definable moment of historical appearance. As we saw, for example, in episode 4, with the birth of the concept of the soul, the numinous is another one of these. It's very modern, and we don't find it in pre-modern movements, although we may justifiably be able to project it backward if we want to. That's another question. Turning to William James, he was an eminent American scholar of religion and a psychologist, brother of the Henry James, who wrote those interminably descriptive fiction books. James's contribution, especially in his book, the Varieties of Religious Experience, which actually records a series of lectures he gave in Edinburgh in 1901 to 1902, and which is a classic of the history of religions, which has been in print ever since it was published. James gives us an actual typology of what mysticism is taken to be. It consists in two main characteristics, and two common but non-essential characteristics, namely ineffability and noetic quality, and transiency and passivity respectively. If you rearrange the order of these four characteristics, you can abbreviate them as pint, which may help when you sit at the bar later on trying to recall all the information of this podcast. Mysticism has various types, subtypes, and so on, but most of all, it is an experiential category. Mysticism for James is something you experience. It's a kind of ecstasy. His approach is cross-cultural, and so God doesn't really need to come into it. Ecstasy is what matters. So it's easy to see how this kind of conception of mysticism, which we can more or less credit James with developing and popularizing, 
evolved seamlessly into the idea of a universal Ur-Erfahrung, a primal experience common across cultures and traditions. Again, whether or not you feel that this is something people have always undergone as part of the human condition, it is not a conception of mysticism which can be found formulated in this way before the 19th century. It's very modern. Before we finish this episode, we should mention the work of two more very influential factors feeding into modern conceptions of mysticism, both of them informed by the earlier developments of post-Kantian rationalism and the growth of 19th century psychology. And these influences have the virtue of belonging within the Western esoteric traditions. The first is, of course, Aleister Crowley, mountaineer, raconteur, bon vivant, and occult practitioner. The ideas expounded in Crowley's massive work represent a very serious and very influential in a subterranean kind of way, contribution to the theory of mysticism. Mysticism for Crowley is very much an experiential phenomenon, but one which we are specifically called upon to fathom the laws of so that we can manipulate it for our own ends. Crowley's journal, The Equinox, was subtitled The Journal for Scientific Illuminism, which gives a flavor of what he was on about. He wants to take mysticism, which he takes as a fact of human existence, but quite rare and difficult to understand, and put it on scientific laws so that it can basically be turned on and off at will. We'll, of course, have much more to say about the eminent Alistair in later episodes. We should also mention here the loose intellectual tendency known as traditionalism, with a capital T, which takes its beginnings from the work of René Guénon, a French occultist who later rejected his roots in the theosophical and spiritualist milieu to, to found an altogether more stringent worldview in which genuine traditions, that is to say, the religions of the world which met Genonian standards of traditionality, were carriers of an initiatic core, an esoteric message, and in some cases a kind of esoteric experience which led to true mysticism. This take on the mysticism as the common denominator of seemingly diverse religious traditions theme would have an immense influence, again in a subterranean manner, not least on American scholars of religion like Joseph Campbell and Houston Smith, but on many esoteric movements as well. We've set out in this episode to sketch a trajectory from the mystery cults to modern conceptions of mysticism. We're basically looking at the evolutionary history of a collection of words which can all be traced back to the Greek terminology, referring specifically to the initiatory cults known as the mysteries. Overviews like this have their value, but of course the really good stuff is always in the details. But before we resume our detailed historical narrative, we should turn again to this modern conception of mysticism and poke it a little bit and shake it and see if it holds together or not. So join us next week for an episode devoted to just such a terminological poking as we ask whether mysticism is a useful term to use at all. Until then, try to be like the ineffable truth which cannot be revealed, even when displayed in plain sight, and stay necessarily esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>